listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you? My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and let's get right to it. Mark chapter 10 is where we are this morning, and if you don't have a Bible or you are uh, you just forgot yours today, I would really encourage you to follow along with us, and you can use the Bible in the chair in front of you, under, underneath the chair in front of you. There's some racks there that have Bibles, and if you're not used to looking up Bible passages, you can find Mark chapter 10 on uh, pages 845 and 846. We're going to read the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10 as, we're, as we've been for the past few months working our way through, through Mark. Hey, while you're finding Mark, uh, Mark Valdeparis, who's one of our army guys here and works at Fort Benning and helps to train young lieutenants, told me that there's some ranger grads, maybe six or seven guys that have been coming to the church over the past few months that just graduated from ranger school on Friday. If that's you, did anybody graduate from ranger school? They tend to sit over here for some reason. Anybody, raise your hand if you graduated from ranger school. Anybody here that graduated from ranger school? Over there, we got, yep, short hair, got the ranger tan, all right, <laughs> got the top of the head. Yeah, praise God. Amen. Let's uh, continue to remember our men and women in, uh, in the armed forces and the difficult things that they do for us and are still doing for us. So we salute you, brother. Thank you for your sacrifice. And if you happen to munch on a donut in the middle of the sermon, that's okay, man. It's all right. We know you're hungry. Um, all right. Well, uh, before we get into this week's message and the topic, um, I want to um, just go back for just a second to tidy up something that I mentioned last week. As you know, we finished up Mark chapter 9 last week, and we looked at a very difficult issue where Jesus spends the last uh, portion of Mark chapter 9 talking about the seriousness and consequences of sin, and he grounds the seriousness and consequence of sin in the horror and reality of eternity separated from him forever, which is hell. And so we, it was a difficult week last week to think about those truths, but it's good for us as a church to, to go through what the Bible says um, as, as a means to, to preserve our soul and to, to stir our affections for the holiness of God and to warn us. And in one of the high points, as you know, that I get a little bit carried away sometimes as I'm, as I'm preaching, I'm the son of an Italian football coach, <laughs> so I tend to get... Uh, kind of halftime speech sort of like in my, um, in my, uh, my preaching. And in the middle of that uh, talk, I, I mentioned a word that I think I, I wish I, I regretted a little bit. I talked about how Christians should feel the weight of these scriptures, that we as Christians should not just sort of think about hell and the consequences of sin as something that we don't need to be worried about or concerned about or think about. And I mentioned that should Christians doubt their salvation, and, and, and I said yes, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says that we should examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And I regret using that word doubt. I think a better word to use in that situation would have been that we should continually, as people who put ourselves under the weight of Scripture, examine ourselves. Because I think that that word doubt is, is not something that I think unwittingly can cause us to 
um, think that maybe we can lose our salvation or that our salvation might be sort of works-based rather than based solely on Jesus' work. And so um, if that word this week has caused you trouble, I regret using that word and I would retract that. But I would say that I think the balance and the force of Scripture, although if you've been around Crosspoint for more than a couple of weeks, you know that we put an extremely high accent on the finished work of Christ and the sovereignty of God alone is our right standing with God. We can't be people who just rejoice in that, church, that truth and then just also forget about the passages of Scripture that warn us to stay in the faith. And I want you to know that as a pastor, especially in the Bible Belt South, that I love, that I'm so glad that God has transplanted me from my hometown and made me uh, to live and spend the rest of my life, Lord willing, here in this hometown of Columbus, Georgia, I am acutely aware that in our culture we have many people, and I think on every Sunday, very likely we have people in this room who may think they're Christians just because they've grown up in the South or they've kind of had a casual relationship with the church, but aren't. And so in a sense, I'm, I'm often preaching the gospel to people who think that they're Christians, but maybe aren't. I don't think that applies to the majority of you, or if you're a Bible-believing Christian, that doesn't apply to you. But I'm always trying to push that person that may be in here on any given Sunday to take the Bible very seriously and not just feel like, you know, because they're in the Bible Belt, they're okay with God. But nevertheless, I regret using that word, um, and, and I don't want that to cause you any turbulence in, uh, in your walk with Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're safe and secure in Him because of Jesus' work, not your own. So let's close the chapter on that difficult topic and move on to another one, <laughs> divorce and remarriage. All right. Um, This, friends, is why we preach through the scriptures, Um, and because, as I mentioned last week, I wouldn't necessarily wake up on a beautiful spring morning and say, let's talk about divorce, but that's where the text has us. So in just a moment, I'm going to read, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through uh, this difficult passage. I want to mention a couple things here before we begin. First, as a church, just like last week, we need to approach this topic of divorce with much graciousness, grace for one another, and sensitivity, knowing that virtually all of us in this room have in some way been affected, varying levels, either very drastically or personally, or at least through our family, by divorce. And so we come at this not with a heavy hand of fundamentalism and no grace, but with with a lot of humility and sensitivity towards one another. And then we also, I, I'm, I'm very aware of people in this room that are not married. We're going to talk a little bit about God's intention for marriage today. And, and if you are single, just a word to you this morning. If you are single um, and you, uh, it's difficult for you to listen to sermons and messages on marriage, and in this case marriage and divorce, I want you to know that you're not a second-class citizen in God's family. In fact, Jesus is the most complete human being that ever lived, and he was never married, never had sex. And Jesus is the epitome of what a human should be. And so even as we read this morning in our catechism, what is idolatry? We, We come to rejoice in the truth of marriage today, but not to make marriage an idol. We don't find our significance, our satisfaction, whether or not we're married. 
We find our significance and satisfaction in God alone. So, okay, let's read the text now and pray, and then we're going to work through this. In fact, let me do this. Let me pray first, and then we'll read. Oh, Father, as we come to your, we come to your scriptures, we come humbly. We come with great thankfulness in our heart that your word is true, inspired by you, given by the Holy Spirit to men. It represents your authoritative will and way. It's without error. It's been handed down to us through the centuries, guarded and preserved by the Holy Spirit. And because it is your word and your word alone, we can have great confidence that it is good for us in all its ways. Now, Lord, as we come to a difficult truth, we pray that we would humble ourselves as we did last week and as we need to do every week. Pray that we would humble ourselves. Pray that you'd give us deep sensitivity for your truths and for each other. I pray that Jesus would be magnified today, even as we're talking about marriage and divorce. I pray that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your covenant-keeping love with your spouse, the church, would be the high note today. I pray for encouragement for those who are wrestling with a very difficult marriage so that they would see even today that there's hope. I pray for those that have been stung by divorce, that they would be encouraged. And I pray, Lord, for those that are not yet married, that desire to be married, that they also would find encouragement in this message and not make an idol out of marriage. I pray, Lord, for our friends, the Barkhouses. Thank you for bringing them here to worship with us today. We're so grateful for people who are taking the gospel to difficult places, to, to hard ground. I pray, Lord, that you would bring rain, gospel rain, to, to soften the soil in Kosovo and that they would see fruit and that you'd encourage them. Thank you for their ministry there and our partnership together in the gospel. And we pray for these two things that Jeff has mentioned, discouragement and leaders there in Kosovo. Help us now, Lord. Humble us as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read verse, chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him, and again, again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2, and Pharisees came up in order to test him, And asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay, well, let's think about these words here. And let's, here's my plan today is to give us sort of an overview of what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. And so in just a moment, we're going to look at seven truths that I think we can glean. We're going to move pretty quickly through some of them, settle down in others. We're going to look at seven truths that I think summarize the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce. But first, to give us a context of the setting of what's going on here, let's look at what is happening in these 12 verses Jesus has been teaching. And he has these Pharisees come up, and notice that word. It says that they come to test him. And so, I mean, what, what, what hubris, what arrogance to come test Jesus. And yet they come to test him. And notice the slant of their question. It's not, they're not asking him about God's intention for marriage. It seems like they're sort of looking for a loophole, a loophole kind of a, how do you get out of this thing? What, what are the grounds for divorce? And so instead of answering their question directly, Jesus takes them back to the Scriptures in fact, back to God's orig- original intention for marriage in Genesis that we'll look at in just a second. And he talks to them about the, the beauty, the, in, the, the will of God in, in marriage. And then after he has that sort of encounter with the Pharisees where he doesn't answer their question like he intends, they, they intend him to, then in a more private setting with his disciples, Jesus goes a little bit deeper and talks about um, when a marriage ends and when divorce is permissible. And so there's this cultural setting amongst the people of the time that is informed by the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, as large as it is, there's, there's really not much at all said about divorce. In fact, there's really only one scripture in the whole Old Testament that, that in any sense, as far as a law way, speaks to uh, what God would say to divorce. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And, and this is the text, really, that they're asking uh, Jesus about and that he responds to. So let me, I think it might be helpful if I just read Deuteronomy chapter 24, just the first few verses, verses 1 through 4, because this is the setting. This, this informs the background of what this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees is all about. So this is what wrote Moses writes in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Again, divorce is referenced in the Old Testament, but this is really the only instance where it's addressed by God through Moses. This is what Moses says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, okay, so I know that got a little crazy on you, let me just summarize. So what's happening is Moses is saying, God is saying through Moses that if a man is married to a, a woman and he finds some indecency in her, We'll look at what that means in just a second. And divorces her. He can write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then she marries another guy, husband two. And that husband doesn't like her for whatever reason. And then he, he, if he divorces her, then that first husband cannot go back and marry her again. Why is that? Because 
there's this culture of dowry. So the father of the bride would give a gift to the wife as she enters into the first marriage, which would then be assumed by the first husband, okay? But assumed in this text, and this is what's going on here, it's not spelled out specifically, but what's going on here then is if that husband divorces her for some reason, and then she marries a second guy, then the father would then again give a second dowry, which the wife would get to keep in that second marriage if that second guy divorces her. And so what is going on here is this is a regulation that God is giving to Moses to protect women from the whims and the sin of men who are just divorcing them for whatever reason and sort of leaving them penniless. So what he's saying is, is these men can't just pass this woman around. I've had enough of her. I'm done with her. Just give her away and then just marry her for a short time to sort of get her dowry. That, that breaks after that first marriage. Sort of that woman in that second marriage isn't just sort of left penniless as she goes from second husband to third husband to fourth husband. And then the, the first husband can't come back around and marry her just to get the dowry a second time again that she got for her second marriage. And so what's going on is in this, in this text, God through Moses is not, he's not condoning divorce. He's regulating the consequences of divorce and the negative effects culturally for women protecting them from these husbands who are just, you know, using these women and getting the dowry from their father. And so then from this text, really the only Old Testament teaching on divorce, which is important that we know that this is just God through Moses regulating the consequences of divorce. He's sort of, he's he's not saying this is my intention that you get divorced, but he's saying that if, if because of the hardness of your heart, I'm just going to help you regulate the consequences. But notice there in verse 1, what are the causes of divorce? What are the legitimate causes of divorce? And it says in verse 1, when a man takes his wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then he may write her a certificate of divorce. And so what does that mean, some indecency? Well, there were two schools of thought, two schools of thought. One was sort of the more conservative of thought, and one was the liberal Um, view of of thought. And so the more conservative thought was that this indecency means some sort of sexual infidelity or immorality, that if her husband found her to be sexually immoral or um, unfaithful, then he could give her a certificate of divorce. That was the more conservative thought. But then there was a more liberal theological school that said, hey, if she's just a bad cook, I mean, you can divorce her. Uh, really, I mean, that's, that was written in some of the, the commentaries on this Old Testament law by this more liberal school, that if she's a bad cook, or if you just don't like the way she looks anymore, or if some prettier girl comes along, um, you know, you can just sort of cast her aside and marry, which, which obviously is a, a horrible situation for, for women. And so there's these two schools of thought, and these Pharisees are coming to Jesus to hear what he has to say about this, to test him very likely, not because they really care what Jesus has to say about this, but they're trying to trap him probably very much like John the Baptist when he spoke against Herod's divorce and his marrying his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, and then John preached against that unlawful divorce and remarriage. What did it cost John? It cost John his head. And so maybe this is, they don't care what Jesus thinks about divorce so much, they're just trying to 
to get him in trouble with Herod so that he might, he might be killed as well. And so this sort of backdrop informs this exchange with, with, with Jesus and these Pharisees about the situation of what divorce meant. And so from that, we see then our first principle. So let's start walking through what I think this text in the Bible says about marriage and divorce. And number one is this, is that we see from Jesus' interaction here that marriage is ordained by God to be between one man and one woman for life. Notice Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He actually does not give them an answer to the question that they're asking. Later on, he speaks about divorce with his disciples in a, in a more private setting. But they ask him, here in verse 2, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they're asking him, is he going to be the conservative guy or is he going to be the liberal guy? And he answered, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man, in verse 4, to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus says to them, well, it's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote this commandment. And then he takes it from that Deuteronomy passage, and he goes back even further to God's original intention in Genesis and the, or, the ordaining of marriage. So Jesus says, I'm not going to get caught up on, on, on what you think about that situation because that's not God's intention. God's just regulating the consequences of divorce. If you want to ask me a question about marriage, Let's go back to God's intention in marriage. And he takes it all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he says in verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So in marriage, Jesus speaks here about this most amazing of Miracles where one plus one equals one. And Jesus sets in this conversation God's intention for marriage, which it is ordained by God between one man and one woman for life. And notice that Jesus grounds marriage in the created order, not in the civil order. So marriage exists not primarily to give order to society, but in the created order as a reflection of who God is. And so, so friends, that has all sorts of consequences. If you're a Christian, that means that the Bible is clear to us that marriage is ordained by God. It's, it's created by God, not by culture, not by society. And so, therefore, that, that has all sorts of implication. It means that God has intended for marriage to be between a man and a woman, and for all of our sexual relationships to occur only within that one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. So this informs a Christian's response to things like gay marriage. Because clearly, it's not rooted in the civil order. It's rooted in God's created order. How he makes a man and a woman to dwell together. Now let me just say that the purpose of today is not to talk about a Christian response to our culture's increasing acceptance of gay marriage. I think we should do that soon, and we very likely will do that soon to talk about how a Christian should posture themselves towards that. But clearly in this text, we see that anything outside of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime is outside of God's will and intention. Having said that, 
we want to be very gracious to people, not only that have been divorced, but people who may be struggling with same-sex attraction, knowing that human sin runs the gamut. And there are people in this room even that are struggling with all manner of things. And so heterosexual activity outside of the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman is outside of God's will and incompatible with biblical Christianity. Likewise, same-sex attraction or homosexual marriage is outside of God's plan for humanity, not rooted in the created order and is outside of God's will and not compatible with biblical Christianity. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people in this room who are struggling with all manner of sin, whether it's heterosexual sin outside of, of, of marriage or infidelity in a heterosexual marriage or same-sex attraction. And just as we want Crosspoint to be a place that is a place of grace and truth and healing and salvation for people struggling with all sorts of sin, I certainly hope that's the case for those that are in this room that may be struggling with same-sex attraction. And we need to realize here before we begin and we move through these next points quickly is that disagreeing with the Bible, disagreeing with what God teaches about marriage, which many, we see many old mainline denominations in America just sort of caving on this. Friends, we may disagree with this, but we should know that we're disagreeing with the clear teaching of Scripture. And so, so it's not a case of wondering what the Bible says about this issue. There's really no wiggle room for that. And know that if you're claiming to be a Christian and you're wanting to look for uh, some sort of variant uh, look at what the Bible says about marriage as being something other than a one-flesh union between a man and woman, know that um, if you're disagreeing with that, you are disagreeing with the clear teaching of Scripture. So marriage is ordained by God to be between one man and one woman for life. So then that brings us to point two, which is the issue primarily of this passage. What about divorce? Point number two. Divorce seems clear from Jesus' teaching, is permitted but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment. So let's look again at the text. So Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees. They ask him about marriage. He doesn't really answer their question. He takes it back to God's intention for marriage. And then his disciples kind of pull him aside in a house later on in verse 10 of Mark chapter 10. We read, let's read it again. And in the house, the disciples asked him again later about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so it seems like here that Jesus is saying that there's no, there's no um, reason for divorce. And if somebody divorces their wife and marries another, they commit adultery. But in Matthew chapter 19, which is a parallel passage, it's Matthew's account of this very same instance, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, where Matthew records this interaction with Jesus, he adds in an exception clause for sexual immorality. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, it says this, and this is Matthew recording this same scene in verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, to his disciples, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we have a difference here in Mark chapter 10, which we just read, and Matthew chapter 19, which is Matthew's account of this same scene. 
in Mark's account in chapter 10, he just says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And Matthew says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and divorces another commits adultery. So Matthew's account adds this one exception of sexual unfaithfulness. So what's going on here? Why is there a difference? Well, very likely, Mark, and by the way, Luke also in his account records the same thing that Mark does. It doesn't mean that there's a a conflict in Scripture. It means that very likely Mark and Luke are just assuming that the the disciples and that the readers know that Matthew is, is saying that. And so there's not a conflict there. But we know that because it's in Matthew's Uh, more detailed account of this truth that this clause exists where Jesus is permitting, he's permitting divorce because of the hardness of our hearts on the grounds of unfaithfulness. And we also see in Paul's letters, now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there seems to be one other case very clearly where the apostle Paul permits divorce. And this is Paul teaching the pagan Corinthians who have become Christians who are probably in marriages where maybe one person has become a believer and now they find themselves married to an unbeliever, what, what's going on there? Should they stay in that marriage or not? And so Paul addresses that situation and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, not meaning that he's sort of stepping out of being inspired right now, but he's saying that Jesus didn't address this in the Gospels. To the rest, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So if you find yourself in a marriage where you've become a Christian and your spouse is not, you shouldn't shouldn't divorce them, you should stay with them. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So he's not saying that if you're an unbeliever, you're just sort of saved because you're married to a believer, but what he's saying is that God has really set you apart and put you in a situation where you have a special opportunity to hear the gospel through this believing spouse. But then verse 15 addresses this issue if the unbelieving spouse abandons or leaves the marriage. What should the Christian do then? And that's what he says in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So in other words, if you're married to a non-Christian and that non-Christian abandons or leaves or insists on breaking the marriage, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They're not bound. God has called you to peace. So, we see two instances here. As we collate the Gospels on what they say about divorce, where in Matthew, Matthew goes into a little bit more detail about Jesus' conversation with the disciples in the room, where he says that anyone who divorces their, their spouse except for sexual immorality where they've broken this, this, this one flesh covenant. And then we read later on in the New Testament where Paul says, and then also this situation where y- you, can't, you can't help but break the marriage because one spouse leaves. We see these two exceptions in the New Testament where divorce is permitted, and I want to accent this, but not required on two grounds, sexual unfaithfulness or abandonment. 
there are no other biblical grounds for divorce at all. None. Sexual infidelity. And by the way, I would add to that that it's not just maybe, I think the intention here in scriptures is not just in Jesus' intention when he's speaking to Matthew, or his, his words are recorded in Matthew. It's not just a one-time uh, unfaithfulness, but a, a sort of chronic, unrepentant sin of marital unfaithfulness. Or when one spouse deserts, the unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage, these are the only two grounds for divorce because of our weakness and because of the hardness of heart. There are no other biblical grounds for divorce, none. Not, not irreconcilable differences, not, as our culture says, gosh, you know, I just fell out of love with you and I, and I, and I want to go now with somebody else that I'm more attracted to or that, you know, completes me more, whatever horrible lie that our culture would tell us. There are no other grounds. A valid question that some of you may be asking is what about, what about in cases of abuse? Well, friends, clearly in the case of abuse, obviously, separation for the protection of the abused spouse, obviously usually the wife, is in order. And that is a case where the state and the church should step in to protect the abused spouse. And in that case, where we would stand biblically is if, let's just say, a husband was abusing his wife. And let's just say even that that abusive husband is claiming to be a Christian and he's abusing his wife. At some point, then that brother, if he does not turn from his sin, if he doesn't repent of his sin, then the church, I think, justifiably, as it says in the, New, in the New Testament, where Jesus talks about church discipline, and Paul talks about church discipline, when we walk in unrepentant sin, at some point the church needs to say to that person, you are not turning from your sin, and so we can no longer consider your confession of faith in Jesus valid, and so we are putting you out of the church. And so for a husband that is chronically abusing his wife physically, at some point the church needs to step in and say, you are not acting like an unbeliever. And as far as we're concerned scripturally, only God knows the condition of your heart. But you're you're an unbeliever as far as we're concerned. And in that case, in a case of chronic physical abuse, I think that would come under the classification of abandonment. But Lord willing, in situations like that, hopefully the abusing spouse would repent and the marriage can be restored. So divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment. Which then leads us to an inference that we can draw from this. Point number three, that remarriage after divorce on biblical grounds is permissible. Now there's all sorts of different views on this. And um, I, I would say that we're probably in the majority and in the middle of biblical thought and interpretation on this. There are some that would think that there is no instance where a divorced person can ever be remarried. And then there are others that would say um, that re- regardless of what the circumstances of the divorce were, that remarriage is possible um, or permitted biblically. And, and I think what the Bible teaches here is that remarriage after divorce on biblical grounds is permissible. So where do we get that from? So we go back to Matthew chapter 9, uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, where Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So the issue there is divorce and remarriage. And Jesus is saying 
that when that happens, it's adultery except when that marriage has been broken because of the unfaithfulness of one spouse. And then I would think that what we just read in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, where Paul says that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or not bound to singleness for the rest of their life. And so uh, our stance here as the pastors and elders would be that remarriage after a divorce on biblical grounds is permissible. Which then leads us to the, the, the consequence of point number three, which would be point number four. Truth number four is that if that's the case, then therefore remarriage after a divorce without biblical grounds is not permissible and results in adultery. And so Jesus is saying here clearly that, we read it in Matthew 19, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife or her husband, except for this ground of sexual immorality. And then we can include Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, except for abandonment or sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So remarriage after a divorce without biblical grounds is not permissible and results in adultery. All right, so let's pause here and realize that some of us in this room uh, may be in that very situation. And maybe this is the first time that you've heard this biblically laid out like this. So what should you do then? Should you, oh my gosh, I'm in a situation where 10 years ago I divorced for maybe an unbiblical reason, and now I find myself married again, and in fact my ex-wife or husband is now also married again. To follow the Bible's teaching here, should we undo? I mean, how do you undo? I don't think the Bible calls us to just cause more turbulence in our lives and disruption, which I think leads us to point number five is that Christians in an unbiblical divorce and remarriage, that's where you find yourself, you should repent, receive forgiveness and grace, and remain as you are in that marriage that you're in right now. Friends, let's not hold divorce up as the unpardonable sin. And that if you find yourself in an unbiblical divorce and remarriage that you have to wear a, a a scarlet letter D stitched on the front of your clothing for the rest of your life, friends. We all find ourselves confronted with biblical truth and teaching, finding ourselves looking back on our past, realizing, oh my gosh, I've, I've broken God's law. I was out of bounds there biblically. What should I do now? Friends, it would cause havoc if we went back to repair our lives in this situation if we find ourselves in an unbiblical divorce and remarriage. I would say this, that if you are unbiblically divorced and you're still single and your spouse that you separated from, divorced from, is single, I think that you should try and restore that marriage. I think that you should, you should pursue reconciliation. And see, isn't it a commentary in our culture where we think, oh, that's just crazy. Oh, come on. That's just, uh, how could I do that? It's a commentary on us and how we are so far from the biblical truth in this. So Christians in an unbiblical divorce and remarriage should repent, receive forgiveness and grace, and remain as they are. But can I also caution you that let's not be like the Pharisees that were coming to Jesus sort of looking for a loophole 
So while divorce is not the unpardonable sin, friends, we also need to be careful about our hearts and, and not just presume that we can ask for forgiveness later. We may, and some people in this room may be in a very difficult marriage in a very struggling situation. And, and you may just think, oh, well, well, I just need to get out of this. And it just wasn't meant to be. And, and, then, and then maybe I can get married again and I'll just repent later. I know, I know God will forgive me. God will forgive me. Friends, if we, if we do that, we think, we, we make the mistake of believing that our repentance is something that we can just sort of generate. Repentance is a gift, and we should not presume that we can just repent later and be forgiven. If we do, we find ourselves looking for a loophole and an exception, and and ourselves writing ourselves into the scenario as being the one situation that God understands, as opposed to what He has clearly written. So, we should enter this with much humility. So, Let's now look at the final two truths. and I know this has been heavy and difficult. Let me switch gears back to Jesus' intention and God's intention for marriage, and I conclude with this. This all brings me back to what I think Jesus was trying to do in the original case was not to satisfy their questions about a loophole for divorce, but rather to point them back towards God's intended purpose for marriage. And it's point number six, that marriage is more for our holiness than our happiness. Now, I realize this flies in the face of our culture. This flies in the face of virtually every sitcom, every Lifetime Movie Network show, every TLC wedding story show, everything that we consume in our polluted culture. But have we thought about that, that maybe God's intention for marriage is our sanctification and our holiness, not just our, our temporal happiness here on this earth? Remember what Jesus did. He took marriage back to the created order to reflect something eternal. God's relationship with, with His people. And we live in a culture, in a world where marriage is seen as, as I mean, we live in the, and this is too, going back too far for some of you that are, that are in your 20s, but, but remember the line on Jerry Maguire, the show about the, you know, the, the sports agent, and he had this relationship with this woman, and finally at the end they get married, and he walks in. We've all seen the scene. We've watched, some of you have watched it a million. It was a date night movie for you, and, 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 you know, he says something along the lines of, you know, you had me at hello, but then she says, you complete me? Friends, I mean, come on, I don't mean to ruin your romantic dinner this evening, but do you realize the, the, the man-centeredness, the, the us-centeredness of, of that? Do you realize the, the idolatry that stands behind that? That marriage is merely for our temporal happiness. And see, what happens when the person that you're married to for a decade or 20 years, that that you're in the middle of a very difficult marriage and you're struggling and and you want to bite their head off? And you can't imagine how you're going to get up next to this person for the next 30 years. What What if the thought creeps into your mind that they don't complete you? What do you do then when you're idle doesn't complete you. 
Well, you're vulnerable to give up on it because your idol in this whole time has been how this person can satisfy you and meet your needs and make you complete and bring you happiness. But what if, friends, what if God's intention for marriage is not just merely our happiness? And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that marriage isn't supposed to be a joyful thing and that it shouldn't bring us great happiness. But what if the, the more eternal reason for marriage is not just our happiness but our holiness? In fact, look at where this text finds its place in our journey through Mark. Jesus has been performing these great miracles, and now we see this turn in Peter's confession in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus now switches from miracles to teachings about his death and his resurrection. And now, in Mark chapter 10, it's a whole chapter full of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. And so we see here discipleship and marriage. Next week, discipleship and parenting and children. And then after that, discipleship in our possessions. And so now Jesus is speaking about what it means to follow him. And so part of what Jesus is doing here is teaching us that marriage is not just about our happiness, but about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to grow in our holiness. And if you do find yourself in a a struggling marriage, let me just encourage you and say to you that there's resources here at this church. There's people that you can come alongside to encourage you in community groups, other Christians. There's pastors here that want to encourage you and to help you with your struggling marriage. All of us that have been married for more than just a few months realize how difficult marriage can be. And we are, we are fooled if we think that the Facebook portrayal of marriage is reality. And if you're in a struggling marriage, and every time you open up your Facebook wall and you see your friends posting pictures about how wonderful their husband or spouse are, and it makes you want to stick your fork in your eye. (laughs) Because, and really it's created kind of an anger in you. And I thought, well, maybe I married the wrong person. Have you considered that marriage isn't just for you. First of all, every marriage goes through tremendous struggle at some point along the way. Every marriage does. And second of all, have you considered that maybe marriage is primarily intended by God, not just for your earthly happiness, but for your holiness to, to reflect something far greater, which leads us to our seventh point. And I end on this. That the reason why marriage is so important. And the reason why it's so important that we do not break our marriages even when it's very difficult. And the reason why even if there is infidelity that I believe God's intent would be that we do all that we can to try and repair the marriage. This isn't just sort of a get out of jail clause here like, oh my gosh, my, my, my husband did something terrible and, and now I, I have my ticket out of this thing. Or, or even if a person abandons the marriage. It's not just right away we go to the lawyer's office to file for divorce. Even in situations where where there's been sin and very difficult trials, still God's heart is, I believe, to reconcile, to, to display something much greater than just civil order or our happiness. And it's point number seven is that marriage is meant to display the covenant-keeping love of God. 
And when we, when we anchor our struggles and our trials in marriage outside of and beyond and deeper than our temporal happiness, knowing that our marriage is for something far more than just our happiness and joy, but to display God's love for His bride, the church, it anchors us and gives us strength for the storms. Listen to Paul's teaching and Paul's words to the Ephesians church, and I'll, I'll end on these words. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5. And this may be a wonderful text if you are in a difficult marriage or if you're just as happy as a lark. Regardless of where you are in the spectrum of difficulty in marriage, this would be a great text for you to dwell on with your spouse and to read together. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with, word, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Listen to this, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting the same words that Jesus did to the Pharisees from Genesis. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so what, Jesus, what Paul is saying here is that, husbands, lay down your lives for your wife because your marriage reflects something more than just earthly relationship and temporal happiness. It reflects, it's to be a sort of echo of Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. And so the reason why we are not to give up on our struggling marriages is because it reflects the covenant-keeping God that we worship who doesn't give up on his wife when she is adulterous or when she abandons him. God comes after his bride, the church. And so likewise, we should go after our spouses when we are in a struggling marriage because the purpose of marriage is something far greater than our temporal happiness is to display the covenant keeping love of God and when we absorb our lives with that therein lies true happiness therein lies true joy let's pray and ask the Lord to help us thank you Church family for hunkering down in two difficult passages. Let's pray now that God would help us think through these issues and wrestle with these truths. Father, we come to you now humbled. These last two weeks have been heavy about sin and hell and now about divorce and adultery and remarriage and and the purpose of marriage that we so often miss. Father, I am uh, 
I'm particularly thinking of, of a few different groups in this room. First, the, the person who is divorced and has been divorced. And Lord, every situation is so complex and so difficult to sort through. I pray, Lord, that they would feel your grace, that if they find themselves in a situation now that is outside of what your truth teaches, that, Lord, they do not need to live in a perpetual state of unforgiveness, but our sins have been removed. They've been nailed to the cross. Jesus has bore the wrath, the penalty for our sins, and we are now, if we are trusting in you, our righteousness is in Christ, not in ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that that person would find grace and hope and and wind in their sails to remain as they are and glorify God in whatever state they find themselves in now. And Lord, I, I think also of the person in this room, the husband and wife who are in a struggling marriage, and, and quite honestly, they don't see how they're going to do it. And, and God, I know that, that they're vulnerable to be more informed by the culture and, and temporal happiness and just, just whatever seems to give them an ability to just keep their head above water and they, it just don't seem like they can make it. God, I pray that they would not run away from you or away from each other, but that they would run to you and towards their marriage. And I pray that, that God, you would come around them through wise couples in this room, through good resources, a good book on marriage maybe, or pastoral counsel from the pastors and shepherds here at this church. God, I pray that, that you would bring hope in the, the dark cave that some marriages find themselves in even now. And, and I pray that you would turn their heart from maybe being like the Pharisees, kind of looking for a way out to to looking for a a way of healing and that you would just today even although not all the questions are going to be answered and not every problem resolved that that you would just change their posture the the husband who who just is fed up or the wife who just can't bear it that you would change their posture from being oriented away from each other and the marriage just just turn them God back to each other and and God today let it be the day that you begin the long slow beautiful road to healing and restoration because marriage is more it's more than just our happiness it's about our holiness and your covenant keeping love and so God would you would you breathe hope into struggling marriages today and would you make us a people radically committed to making much of your glory as husbands, as wives, as single people, as divorced people, and wherever we find ourselves, God, would we make much of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you do this for the glory of your name, for the good of your church, and for the joy of your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's all stand together.